0: On the show today, I'm offering you double the impact because I've got two guests joining me in the studio. I have Xu Yin Tang and Lee Fitzgerald from Patama Capital. Now, Patama have been on my radar since I heard Xu Yin speak at the Impact Summit last year. She's a partner at the venture capital firm. She's originally from Sydney, but she's now based in Vietnam. And for this trip to Australia, she brought one of the managing partners along with her Lee Fitzgerald, who hails from San Francisco. Patama is focused on improving economic opportunities for low-income communities in Asia, and they do it by making early-stage investments in high-impact enterprises. And that's what we're all about here on The Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big question it's about sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions can have an impact. i learned so much from these guys it was great to go deep on the thinking behind a leading venture capital firm they pride themselves on seeing opportunities that other people miss and the case studies around the businesses they've supported offer powerful inspiration for how much value there is in building the entrepreneurial potential within low-income markets so let's get into it jump on the website for all the show notes over at johntreadgold.com and feel free to continue the conversation on twitter and Instagram. All right, enough out of me. Here's my conversation with Shin Tang and Lee Fitzgerald. Here we go. All right, well. I've got Shuyin and Lee here from Padma Capital. Thank you for coming into Hub Australia in Sydney. Great to have you guys.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: pleasure. Um, you guys are here in Sydney for the Impact Investment Summit this week. Now, Shuyin, uh, I came across Padma Capital because I heard you speak there last year. So maybe just to get started, you can um, fill us in on what you've been doing for the last year.
1: Sure, absolutely. So maybe just a little bit of background on on Panama. So we are an impact venture capital firm, which invests in Southeast Asia as well as South Asia. We have been doing that for almost a decade or so, <laughs> is that rightly? Um, That's right. And, you know, essentially we invest in Series A, Series B companies, which are targeting the mass market. So low and middle income communities and helping them get better access to high quality you know, goods and services in the region.
0: And any exciting deals from the past 12 months?
1: Yeah, it's it's a been a really exciting time for us. So we have recently launched our second fund, Padamar 2, um, and we are looking at quite a lot of exciting pipeline, particularly in, in the SME lending sector, which is one of our, you know, historically, just been one of our focus areas. Um, I think it's been fascinating for us you know, that despite the fact that, you know, SMEs and these small entrepreneurs are kind of the, the backbone of these economies. I mean, I think you just go to Vietnam and see all the m- little mom and pop stores. They really struggle to get access to, to capital. So I think we're looking at quite a few interesting opportunities in that space.
0: What's it like doing business in Vietnam was my question. And, and I guess how does that um, differ to the other countries that Panama, you know, looks after in Indonesia, India?
1: Right. So maybe just as some background, uh, so I'm Australian, as probably uh, people can tell from from my accent. uh, And I moved to Vietnam about you know, seven, eight years ago. Uh, so it's definitely been a, you know, quite an exciting journey. I love working in in Vietnam. Um, I know some people might imagine that, you know, it's full of, you know, bureaucracy, red tape, you know, maybe even corruption, etc. But, you know, I think for the kinds of entrepreneurs that we work with, they actually have, you know, a lot of kind of international and regional exposure, right? I think often they've studied overseas, they've worked overseas, and have come back to Vietnam to really build, you know, companies, which I think, you know, not only to, to make money, but I think also, to, you know, contribute to Vietnam more broadly, right, and kind of a better better life and, and livelihood to their fellow countrymen and women. So I think it's really exciting to be along on that journey with these entrepreneurs. So I think overall, I, I love the energy. I love the dynamism. It's, you know, very different from, you know, Sydney, where I grew up, and, and Canberra, where I studied, uh, quite, you know, also being back in Sydney, I think you just, it's, it's a very stark contrast for me every time.
0: I can imagine you mentioned these mom and pop stores, the the fact that um, it's easy to kind of start that business and, and I guess part of the culture. Does that sort of bloom into a deep, you know, in, in tech and in, in taking that entrepreneurial spirit further? Do you think that that's got a foundation?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, right? So I think Vietnam and I think the other you know, countries where we work, I think definitely there's this kind of entrepreneurial spirit, which you see kind of at that small kind of micro level, right? People are running the bun mi stand or the small like noodle shop. I think those kinds of entrepreneurs, I think if I, am, you know, look frankly at the situation, I think they do have trouble really kind of scaling and taking it to the next level. I think the entrepreneurs that we see and that we're really excited about, are, you know, I think, as, as I mentioned, you know, those entrepreneurs who are returning, I think, from overseas or really had, you know, worked for a big company or have, you know, some deep sector expertise, but really want to branch out on their own. But I think that intrinsic entrepreneurial spirit, which you see everywhere, is, is there. And I think it's one of the interesting things about Vietnam is that everyone carries like three or four different business cards, right? Often, you know, they're not just doing one thing. They're all saying, oh, I've got my other side, you know, my other side business. Oh, you don't, you know, interested in this business. What about my other business? It's quite, People are full of surprises when it comes to, you know, the things that they're working on.
0: So interesting. All right. Well, we'd better not leave Lee out. Lee, we'll get you in the picture here. Now, you operate from San Fran. You founded Padma Capital from over in the States. What drew you to Southeast Asia?
2: We founded our firm nine years ago in San Francisco, uh, really based on the premise that Uh, that we could invest in early stage companies in Southeast Asia and South Asia, that we could focus on low income communities and improving the lives of low income communities in some sort of measurable, scalable way, and still do that and uh, make money for our investors. So it was pretty simple to be said, but uh, tough to execute on. And really what drew us to Southeast Asia were a number of the the top line dynamics. Uh, Obviously population size, population growth, economic growth, education, and you know something as mundane as uh, these days as, as mobile phone penetration. Those are some of the key dynamics and obviously those we found very very attractive. The other thing about Southeast Asian and South Asian economies is that they are large enough from a very venture capital standpoint to support sizable exits. That if you look at smaller countries, um, perhaps more specifically in in, in Africa, there's a lot going on and there's a tremendous amount of need. But many of those economies are not large enough to support the sort of venture capital exit that we need to provide the return for our investors. So that was really the other dynamic that really drew us to to Southeast Asia and South Asia.
0: Hmm. I mean, I think in Australia, we battle defining impact. And I think in in less developed markets, there is this size, things can scale, lots of growth potential, but I guess also a lot of impact potential because there are far more challenges, a big spectrum of wages and, and prosperity. So how does that kind of factor into the decision in where you operate?
2: Well, everything we invest in has to have a a demonstrable impact, a measurable impact, and and we hope certainly a scalable impact. And that's sort of where we start our investment discussion. And if we can't get comfortable with that, then we generally don't invest. So that's sort of a starting point for us and a touchstone really for everyone in our firm. I think, you know, as you say, you can define impact in a lot of different ways. And there are a lot of people who are, you know, maybe across a spectrum of, of how impact is looked at. We look at impact in a fairly fundamental sort of way, which is an an increase in incomes or an increase in job opportunities, potentially both. And we also look at a reduction in in cost of living as an income increase. We look for companies that are sort of changing the economic math between low-income communities, which in many of these countries is, you know, 80 or 90% of the population, between those populations and the larger economy and really changing the math in some fundamental, measurable, scalable, sustainable way.
0: It's an interesting one because when you have the economies aren't as developed, there are some services that simply aren't offered. So I think it's interesting that you can provide a service and simply the existence of it can have an
2: impact. I mean, is there a way to measure that? We tend to go back to our, our central thesis, which is, is this affecting income? Is it affecting their cost of living? Oftentimes, if you see something new that comes on the horizon, it creates opportunities that may be job-creating opportunities or it may be income-creating opportunities. It's a little bit more difficult if you're dealing with something that, for example, is in is in the in the health or more personal well-being space. That's a little bit more difficult to measure. We'd still call that impact but it's a little bit more difficult for us to measure that, at at least in in the way that we choose to measure. And I I think the thing about impact is there are a lot of different ways to measure it. One is not necessarily better than the other, but in our firm, we try to be consistent so that from year to year, from investment to investment, from country to country, we're really trying to compare across a relatively stable baseline i don't you want to add anything to that
1: yeah it's yeah definitely a question that we spend a lot of time musing musing over and i it was it made me smile because I recently attended an impact measurement and management workshop uh, run by uh, Asian Venture Philanthropy Network, uh, which is a, which is a great organization um, bringing together investors in in the Asian region. And you know, I think in some ways we th- we always ask ourselves like, hey, could we do more to measure our impact? Right? Are we doing are we doing enough? And I think after like walking out of this workshop, I actually felt really relieved in a way that hey, this isn't actually rocket science, right, in, in some at some level. You know, it's about having a very clear theory of change going into the investment, right? So what is the thesis here, right? Both on the financial side, but then also on the impact side. How is this improving people's lives and in the way that Lee mentioned? You know, and then it's literally about measuring those kind of those outputs and those outcomes, right? Those uh, very tangible metrics that we can track every quarter or every month. So, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, including ourselves, I think we've tied ourselves into knots about, you know, measuring impact and are we doing, enough? Are we doing it properly? But I think we do track, I mean, all these key impact metrics, which we see as being also operational metrics in many ways, right? I mean, and I think that's so important, this kind of this link between the impact as well as the business, right? because if the impact metrics are trending in the right direction often the business metrics or the business metrics should be trending in the right direction too and you know happy customers right or happy like, beneficiaries in the old <laughs> way people used to talk about the kind of customers or the you know the the people who are benefiting from these interactions you know having really happy loyal engaged customers is just good business as well
0: yeah. I mean, and that's the essence of sustainability, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, you know, long-term gains, if, if you focus on sustainability, then um, you're building a business that'll last in the long term. Yeah, And it's absolutely. moving beyond sort of short-term focus. I mean, digging into the, the type of companies you guys focus on, um, you know, it is early stage, often series A. Can you tell us about, you know, the kinds of businesses and the sorts of like the size of the groups and, and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, maybe we can give some examples from um, Panama One, which is, uh, you know, our first fund, it was about $45 million, where we're investing mainly kind of Series A in investments of a few million dollars. I think one of the companies that I work pretty closely with in Vietnam is a company called Topica, Topica EdTech Group. It provides online education um, in three main ways. So the first one is providing really affordable bachelor's degrees in conjunction with traditional brick and mortar universities, right? And when I say affordable, it's about, you know, 500 dollars per year right which is you know i think cheap and definitely cheap from (laughs) from a u.s perspective but even in the vietnamese perspective is is actually very affordable in the context of that educational system the second thing that they do is they provide um English uh, English speaking classes, so they match up native speakers in Australia, in um, the US, the UK, with you know Vietnamese students looking to learn Vietnamese as uh, looking to learn English over an online platform and have like live live interactions where people can really practice their spoken um, skills, which is the big gap uh, often that that they that they struggle to to improve. And then the third piece is an online courses platform, you know teaching skills like Excel or presentation or you know uh, entrepreneurship or even some things like. yoga or you know babysitting <laughs> so many different types of courses and you know selling them on a on an online platform and in a very affordable price so kind of you know or less per course. So they've had, you know, really incredible impact. I mean, they've reached more than a million, you know, they've had more than a million students on on their platform overall. So I think it's reached, you know, very incredible scale. And I think, you know, particularly on their, you know, the bachelor's degree, the university side, there's been some really tangible uh, impact that we've seen there as well. So for example, the graduates of those degree programs, they actually go on to earn, to have an income increase, which is, you know, double the national average, right? One year after graduating, which is a very, I guess, tangible and, um, and and near-term positive result. And I think from a financial perspective, I mean, the company has recently closed a $50 million round with one of the largest private equity firms in, in Asia. So, I, you know, I think when we came in, I'm not sure whether people really saw the the value or the potential, you know, of an online education company like, like that from Vietnam, of all places. Uh, but I think now that's, you know, become more and more recognized.
0: That's what it's all about, right? That they didn't yeah. see it, but you did.
1: Exactly. And I think that's kind of a big part of our, our thesis, right? I think this, some of these companies out there, they're serving, you know, the, this mass market population, this low income population. And people are like, oh, but these are low income people. They can't afford it. It's, you know, it's not a big market. But actually, that's where the market is. And I think that's what we have been, you know, doing for the best part of 10 years and, uh, and really have experience with, with that kind of, with that mass market segment.
0: And what's that lens then that you use to, to identify those individuals that are that are pretty special that others have missed?
1: How, how do we find the entrepreneurs? And, yeah, well, and what's the, I mean, what do you look what,
0: what for, I guess? S- you know, what's your specific sort of perspective that you take that, that makes you guys different that, that you can find those guys but no one else did?
1: I think a huge part of it is is back to the fact that we are, you know, in all of these different countries, right? So we have, you know, offices. So I'm based in Vietnam, we have an office there, we have an office in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Sri Lanka as well as in India, and our headquarters in Singapore. And, you know, not many venture firms do that, even the more, you know, the purely commercial ones, right? So like a lot of them are sitting in Singapore, they're doing fly and fly out, and I think it's, it's really challenging to, one, I mean, just meet all the different people and find those entrepreneurs. But I think second, to also really appreciate these pain points or challenges, right? I think you really have to be living in a market to see, you know, a challenge with, say, you know, payments or getting access to financial services or getting access to high-quality education or healthcare. I think when you live in these markets, I think particularly if you, you know, try and get out of the, like, Ho Chi Minh City and get out to, you know, tier two cities or rural areas, I think when you do that, you realise that, you know, I think it's, it's a very different experience and kind of um, and, and different, you know, access to products and services that people have. And I think that gives you, I think, a lot of conviction to, you know, to back some of these these companies. Very
0: good. Very good. Well, I might ask Lee to, I guess, compare and contrast. You're from San Francisco, the home of the startup. How does the, I guess, the entrepreneurial mindset, the nature of sort of the businesses and the teams that you identify, um, are there any sort of key differences? Is there a different ways that they, I guess, come up from an educational perspective?
2: Well, I think, as Xu Yin pointed out, we're often talking to entrepreneurs who have had some sort of experience or education outside of their home country. But I think the startup or entrepreneurial landscape, uh, certainly in Silicon Valley or today in San Francisco, is a pretty rarefied atmosphere. I'm not 100% sure that what we learn there is necessarily applicable across the rest of the planet. It is a unique place. And And I think sometimes because of the outsized uh success that it's had sometimes folks in the in silicon valley forget about the fundamentals and i'd say that that maybe is the difference between a lot of the companies that we aim to invest in in asia and you know something as simple and this you know, obviously is in a headline recently, something as simple as unit economics. It's one of the first questions we ask. It's one of the first focuses we have in terms of of taking a look at companies. And, you know, maybe WeWork might've thought about that (laughs) at some point along the way, maybe they did, but, you know, I think fundamentally it's the basics of many companies that we invest in in Asia. It's the fact that they understand their markets, they understand the culture that they're operating in, and they understand that the supply of venture capital is not unlimited. And so they have to be able to pull together a business model that makes fundamental sense in some way, probably more quickly than you do in Silicon Valley. So I, I'd say that's the biggest uh, The biggest difference or the biggest delta that we see across the markets. uh,
0: I guess potentially understanding bootstrapping very well and and maybe having to do it for a little while
2: longer than... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you, you have to make your capital last uh, here and, you know, there are pockets where maybe that isn't as true as there are in other places. Um, Certainly China has maybe outgrown that a little bit and has become its own sort of separate standalone market. But I think that's what we see across Southeast Asia. Uh, And it's certainly one of the things, uh, to go back to your earlier question, that we're really looking for in entrepreneurs is an understanding that they have to make their capital count. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then you guys are both here in Sydney now for the Impact Investment Summit. I'm not sure how much of a perspective you've maintained about Australia and the ecosystem here, but how do you view Aussie social enterprises? Have you... Sort of recognize any changes, or maybe you're eager to um, to get a feel for it while you're here.
2: I'm, I'm going to leave that answer to the, na- to the native. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it's it's interesting. I think even though um, so you know, even though I'm Australian, I have not actually lived in Australia for more than ten years. I'm a little in the dark as to kind of Australian social enterprises, but I will say, I mean, we have been attending the Australian Impact Investing Summit since it began, I think. And also have many um, Australian investors in, in our fund. Um, and I think the perspective that, that at least, I mean, for, from Panama's point of view is that, you know, I think we love coming to Australia because we feel that, you know, I think there's a natural affinity with, with Southeast Asia and the markets where, where we actually invest. And it's not completely answering your question, um, but you know I think we, we see actually much more natural links between Australia and Southeast Asia in, in some ways than say even, you know, the US and, and Southeast Australia. Asia, right? Um, so I think Australians, they, they know Southeast Asia, they've been there. I think they understand, I think, some of the, the growth potential of these markets, because I think, you know, Australia is so embedded in that economically and culturally and in, in many other ways as well. So I think from that perspective, we feel really encouraged. And I think, you know, the the Impact Summit, I think, has a very special feel, I think, that that we've noticed. Um, I think people are very authentic. I think they're, they're really, I mean, quick to challenge, you know, impact washing. And I think some of these, you know, and, and call, you know, <laughs> call bullshit, if I can say that, <laughs> on this podcast around some, you know, some of the, some of the things the different shenanigans we've seen in the impact space right and i think we 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 do feel like our australian investors are always pressure testing us on on the impact of of what we do which we actually really appreciate and value because it is important right and so i think we're learning a lot from uh from the australian market there as well yeah good stuff and i
0: mean the markets you guys target are really big big populations rapidly growing and evolving Um, And from the Australian perspective and an impact perspective, we look at the Pacific as being somewhere that has a lot of sort of development challenges, but what they lack is that big um, population base, very dispersed, you know, um, traditional cultures. So difficult question, but you've got an international relations background, Shiyin, do you have a perspective there? Have you sort of perhaps thought about how your, your VC model could apply there, even when you don't have those potentials for scale in those big populations?
1: yeah i mean i think uh so i mean full disclosure i've never been to the pacific i will need to you know spend some more time there and i think maybe give you a slightly more informed answer but you know, I think one of the things that we've also kind of come to realize ourselves, right, is that venture capital is not necessarily the be all and end all, right, as far as, you know, impact investing is, is concerned. And there are actually a lot of different types of models. And I think, you know, there could be, there could be you know, debt structures, there could be, you know, social impact bonds, many different types of things, right, which are out there in the market, which could actually be a better fit, you know, for countries uh, or kind of, you know, segments or sectors, which have, I guess, less kind of explosive growth potential, right. And, you know, there could be be decent growth companies and looking for for kind of maybe smaller amounts of investment. They're never going to give you that kind of, you know, 50x return, but they still are good investment opportunities. And at least my sense is at least when we look at, I mean, I guess if I think about some of the smaller markets that we have within our geography, like say Laos and Cambodia, for example, I think, again, that's where I think maybe venture capital isn't actually the right approach, right? You know, maybe it's more, more like a more focus on debt, more emphasis on debt. And, you know, again, you see back to the point around bootstrapping, like I see some of these companies in, in the smaller markets like Cambodia, which have bootstrapped, which are, you know, break even because they've really had to, you know, stand on their own two feet without, you know, venture capitalists pouring money into them. And I think in that sense, they actually could be a better fit for different instruments versus just kind of, you know, aggressive return seeking equity.
0: Yeah. 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 Good stuff. I mean, uh, and then when we started, I asked you, you know, what you'd been doing for the last 12 months. Yes. And so to wrap it up, it might be a good, uh, a good opportunity to ask, What's on the horizon? What's coming up? Are there really any interesting trends, sectors, you know, the sort of education and tech? You've sort of talked through that. Is there any interesting sectors that are a little bit left of centre?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that we've been exploring, and I guess it's a sector in its own own way, is um, this idea of gender lens investing. And I'm not sure whether your previous podcast guests have um, have have you know been sharing about this topic. You know, I think we've been working. I think one of the programs that we've been running, or funds that we've been running for the past two and a half years, has actually been a dfat supported initiative um, under the Investing in Women program. And I think that you know, just actually really opened our eyes to um, a lot of the, the different kinds of um, opportunities uh, in in our region that maybe we ha- hadn't kind of quite fully <laughs> seen seen before. So I think we're really interested in exploring the, the gender lens investing space. I mean, both kind of companies which are, you know, led by women, run by women, um, but then also those which are targeting, I guess, the female-focused markets, right? And, and that... Honestly, in, in, where, in the places where we invest, I think even here in Australia, can be feel sectors like education, right, where women make most of the, the kind of purchasing decisions in healthcare, even in many aspects of financial services as well, right, and, and kind of looking after the family's income. So I think we see lots of uh, tremendous opportunities and uh, we may have some exciting <laughs> news on that on that front very shortly.
0: Good stuff Lee any any highlights to come that you can uh, well, share Well I think I
2: think Xu Yin's right I think uh, I think uh, the the excitement around um, uh, gender lens investing especially in our firm and uh, we've really been heavily focused on it for the last two or three years is sort of coming over the horizon very quickly for us. And I think the focus of our fund too, which is uh, heavily around uh, financial services, financial inclusion, not anything new, it's all been talked about, but there are a lot of different models and a lot of different entrepreneurs coming to market with very exciting companies. And we're really, really excited about that space. And we're excited about platform companies. We've had a, a number of very successful investments. In distribution and supply chain companies that are that are reaching out to peri-urban, rural areas in the geographies where we invest, we think that is it's it's been on our radar screen. It's just going to get bigger, and uh, and is really the fundamental focus of our of our second fund. So,
0: mm. and when, when you say it's been on the radar, is that in terms of there's a big opportunity there that you see, or is it um, demand from clients? I guess a demand and supply kind
2: of question. Well, I think it's really twofold. One is, among our first investments was sort of, was a platform company um, in in Fund One that we exited very, very successfully uh, a couple years ago. From that standpoint, it's always been on our radar screen. I think the opportunities are larger. I think the sophistication around these models is getting bigger, and so that's what I mean about getting bigger on the radar screen. I think the opportunity is bigger. I think lower income populations are going to demand, once they see what's possible, there is going to be a greater demand for better services. Um, so we're, we're fond of saying in, in, our, in our company that poor people often get the worst products at the highest prices with the worst service. And that doesn't have to be the case. We can change one or more of those variables simultaneously. And I think once we start doing that, the demand for that in the mass market is going gonna, is gonna to do nothing but increase.
0: Yeah, good stuff. All right, guys, uh, final question. I'll put this out to either of you. I'd love a book recommendation. Maybe something you're reading at the moment, something you think our listeners would really like, even if it's just something that's on the side table right now.
1: Okay. I, well, <laughs> I'm a bit of a voracious reader and podcast listener, so I can share. Ch- I, mean, I mean, my big kind of revelation book, and I think I finally really got into this at the last SOCAP, actually, not the one just a couple of weeks ago but last year it was winners take all right and and i think that's definitely one on many impact investor or social entrepreneurs bedside table i think the other book that i'm reading right now is a book called thinking fast and slow which is a bit of a classic but i think it really has changed a lot of my thinking around psychology and i think you know when people think of investors maybe they think of you know financial analysis but i think for me i've always seen a huge part of what we do is really around psychology and um, you know, understanding what motivates these entrepreneurs and kind of keeps them going at these businesses for you know five years, seven years, and and, and so forth. So um, those are my two recommendations.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think those two are really vital, and because they're so powerful, and really do change your thinking. It's almost a hygiene issue of if you haven't read those, you're kind of lagging because it's pretty important issues there. But um, look, I'll let you guys go. You've only just got to Sydney, so I'll let you uh, get out there and enjoy it. Thank you <laughs> so Thank much you for coming much.
1: in. Thanks a lot. Great.